Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we are pleased to welcome James W. Russell, who's going to talk to us about his new book, The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees, new from Monthly Review Press. Uh, Jim, welcome. Uh, So if you would start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how it is that you came to write this particular book. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, uh, Stephen. Uh, I have uh, a couple of roots into it. One of them is professional and the other is personal. The professional one is that I study as a sociologist uh, social policy. In particular, I compare social policy in Europe and the United States. And retirement plans are a subset of social policy. That's the um, the professional entry into it. Um, the personal one is that in 1986, I took a position at uh, Connecticut State University, and I was offered a choice between a 401k type plan administered by TIAA which administers a lot of academics plans and uh, being a part of the state pension plan. Uh, everybody told me hands down that the uh, TIAA 401k was the, was the way to go. There was no question about it. And I, uh, being completely ignorant on the subject at the time, uh, just went along with that. And then Later on, after two or three years, I began to wonder whether I had made the wrong choice as I began reading about uh, retirement plans. And so I ran the numbers, and I was completely shocked. Uh, I was uh, accruing much more retirement benefit. I would have been accruing much more retirement benefits under the state pension plan than I was under this uh, stock market investing and savings plan. Uh, So that was around the uh, early 1990s. Um, Fast forward to the crisis in 2008, uh, the economic crisis, and uh, all of us who were in that type of plan uh, lost between a third and a half of the accumulated values. And if we were close to retirement, um, that was a very panicky type situation to be in. And so I um, brought up this subject again. Uh, Wouldn't it be great if we could take our money in the TIAA and roll it into the state pension plan for credit? Uh, All kinds of people said that I was crazy, that it was probably illegal, uh, but uh, three years later, after organizing a rank-and-file movement uh, across many unions of state employees talking all over the state of Connecticut, uh, we won that battle. And we were able to switch from the 401k 
uh, type plan into the state pension plan. And uh, that made all the difference um, in terms of my own uh, retirement. Uh, it probably delivered me uh, about, uh, uh, I would say, uh, about uh, 50 to 70 percent more income in retirement than I would have gotten if I had stayed in the TIAA plan. So um, there's still one other route into this book. In the course of all of that work, I uh, engaged with many union people, uh, with many employees. Uh, I did counseling of, of hundreds of state employees who were trying to make the decision whether to switch into the state pension plan. And I discovered just how little most people knew about uh, retirement plans. Um, there, and this included a lot of uh, people in unions who people were asking them for advice on what to do, and they didn't know really what to say. Uh, so uh, that's uh, the immediate stimulus for it is to uh, write a book uh, that anybody who, as an individual, wants to know what to do themselves, okay, with retirement plans, especially if they have choices, and also for uh, union activists who are in the position of either having to negotiate retirement plans or give advice to employees or to members. So why don't we pick up on on one of the pieces that you laid out for us and and the two different kinds of plans that plans that you were discussing often referred to as a defined contribution and defined benefit plans for listeners who may not be familiar with that 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 the sort of the public pension system and the 401k or 403b systems that you described. Can you just tell us a little bit about why they are different and why in your experience at least uh, you found the uh, defined benefit plans to be so superior, and maybe what are the lessons we can learn about that? How should we be thinking about those two different paths toward retirement security? Well, I think it's a it's a question of efficiency. Um, if you put an equal amount of money into a defined benefit plan. Um, as you would put into a defined contribution plan, the defined benefit plan almost always will outperform the defined contribution plan. And the reason for that, um, there are two broad reasons. One is that um, there's much more profit taking by the financial services industry from defined contribution plans. Um, they get commissions, they uh, have fees that they charge, they, um, they have profits. And so there's a lot of skimming that goes on. Um, and that's, uh, that's the one I think that most people notice. But the one that is, I think, even bigger is that the whole approach to the defined contribution plan is based upon individuals and because and, it's like a checking account in the sense that you put this money in and it's your money and then you guide this money uh, to, pres to hopefully get to the point that it'll be enough to finance your retirement. Okay. The problem is that 
um, there's a lot of risk that goes on in all of that. Um, the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. Um, you may have uh, other types of risks. Um, I mean, it's one thing to finance a retirement that takes five years, and it's another to finance a retirement that takes 30 years. Okay, there's a, a weird language in insurance here that talks about longevity risk. Okay, which is the risk that you will live a long time. Okay, which is, is always funny to me, you know, because to me that's a good thing. You know, it's not not a risk that you're going to live a long time. But what the real risk is is that you will run out of money. And so if you, you know, so you come into retirement with five hundred thousand dollars saved up, um, that that'll do pretty good for five years or so, depending upon you know, what, what you need to do. Uh, but what happens if you live to the ripe old age of 130? Okay, you know, you're going to run out of money before you get there. What happens with pension plans is very different uh, with defined benefit plans is that they share the risk among all members, which is the same way that Social Security works. Some people live short amount of time. Some people live a long time. And if you pay each person the average, you can then guarantee that it's going to last for all of their life. Uh, that's that's the way uh, Social Security is set up, and that's the way pension plans are set up. And so what essentially happens is that the short-lived uh, subsidize the long-lived. Okay, but it, it enables a type of security. And for many, many people, um, it's more income than they could get based upon just their own individual savings. And what do you make of the, the often hysterical kind of press coverage about underfunding of those pension problems and the, the fiscal instability or unsustainability of them? What do you make of, of those kinds of arguments or claims? Uh, most are untrue. Um, beginning uh, in the 1980s, uh, early 1980s, there was a concerted effort by um, neoliberal conservative foundations to shake uh, the public confidence in the financing of first Social Security, uh, but then of uh, especially public employee uh, pension plans. And so if you look around the United States today, uh, very conservative uh, foundations like the, the Cato Institute uh, all have affiliates in the states. They all lobby the legislatures. Um, they're all writing op-eds for the newspapers, all saying that um, there's a kind of financial apocalypse coming with uh, state pension plans. And uh, it's true that some pension plans have financial difficulties, okay, but those are almost always because they were underfunded in the past. There's a lot of temptations in states to, uh, when it comes time to writing the state budget, um, to short the pension plan because there's no imminent crisis of it running out of money. Uh, and so they short it and then yeah, it's sort of like skipping a mortgage payment on your house. It's going to build up in time um, into an unfunded liability. But that's not 
a problem with the system. Okay, um, if the system were funded properly, um, there wouldn't be that problem, and it's certainly not the fault of uh, individuals who are in those pension plans because they did their part. They worked. They, if they had to make a contribution, they made a contribution. It's that somebody essentially, or state officials essentially, borrowed from the pension plan uh, in order to cover other budgetary needs of the state. Okay, and then of course that's gonna mount up over time. So uh, that's you know one of the problems uh, for people in pension plans is that there's so much negative publicity out there, uh, the vast majority of which is untrue, but uh, a lot of people believe it to be true. And that uh, contempt politicians to do away with state pension plans, uh, which has done happened in several states, not the majority by you know any stretch, but um, there have been some prominent examples of that. That feels like a, a perfect opportunity to segue to talk a little bit about uh, social security, which of course faces the similar kind of, of public rhetoric about imminent fiscal collapse. So uh, first of all, I wonder if you might sort of say, how, how should people be thinking about the role that Social Security would pay, will play along with other potential sources of income in retirement? And then tell us what you think we should know about so the Social Security system itself, how it's working, and how you read its, its fiscal stability. Well, I think the Social Security system is spectacularly successful. Um, you know, something like one out of every four or five households uh, in the United States gets income from it. Uh, if you look at uh, one of its original goals, which was to reduce elderly poverty, it's done a spectacular job at that. If there were no Social Security, about 40% of elderly people would be in poverty. Uh, but because of Social Security, the, that number is around 9%. Uh, it's also a, an amazingly popular program uh, in the country. Okay. All demographics love it. Okay, I mean, And this includes Republicans. You know, Blacks like it, whites like it, every religious group likes it. Uh, you know, you just go down the list of different possible things. Um, the only people who don't like it are the people who are ideologically opposed to it, which are very neoliberal and conservative interests, and um, certain parts of the financial services industry that don't like the idea that all of that money is going through government uh, coffers rather than through Wall Street, where it can be profited off of, which, of course, is the basis of arguments for privatization. Now, is Social Security um, financially stable? Well, it's certainly um, in the worst of scenarios, not anywhere near collapse. The worst of scenarios is that in about 2031 or 32, uh, if Congress does absolutely nothing, um, they will have to reduce benefits um, so that you would get 80% of your benefits rather than 100% of your benefits. Now, a 20% reduction, of course, is, is not, not a nice thing to look at. Okay, but um, any uh, system like that uh, 
um, has to be actuarially fine-tuned from time to time. Okay, you know, systems like Social Security are based upon contributions going into a collective fund, and then the collective fund pays out benefits to people. So there has to be enough money coming into the fund, enough revenue in order to cover the expenses going out. And you have to um, fiddle with that. Um, You either have to increase the amount of money that comes into the fund or reduce the amount of money that goes out of it to keep it in balance. Um, All social insurance funds, which Social Security is, operate under that principle. Any accountant can tell you that. Now, uh, the reason why we're running to a shortfall in uh, 2031 is that um, Congress hasn't done anything, okay, you know, to increase the revenues, okay, or um, to decrease the expenses. Now, in general, um, if you look at Republicans and Democrats, okay, uh, if Republicans have given up on just totally privatizing it, um, they want to solve the balance problem by reducing the benefits, making you uh, work longer to get your Social Security work to age 70, something like that. Um, And Democrats want to increase the revenue into the system. Either one will work in terms of putting it into balance or even some combination of the two will work. So, you know, without even getting partisan on the issue, there's no question that there's no technical problem here. It's just the question of resetting the balance. Do you have a preferred approach? If you were going to restore that balance, what kinds of policy solutions would you would you put at the top of the list? Well, I would put at the top of the list uh, removing the the cap on income that is taxed for it. Okay, now it's around the hundred, the first hundred and forty thousand of labor income that you have gets taxed, and everything beyond that is not taxed. Now, for the vast majority of people who are listening to this. Uh, you know, they wish they had more than $140,000, right. right? Okay, and, and that covers 100% of, you know, their income. Uh, but when you get to the 1%, the super rich, etc., 140000 is not very much money to them. You know, um, and so uh, if you just removed that cap, which is, by the way, Medicare has no cap, on the labor income, okay? So that would bring in a lot of revenue, okay? And you wouldn't have to touch benefits. But I would go a step further, uh, which is um, to start taxing investment income. Because if you look at um, the people who are really rich in this country, uh, most of their income comes from investment income. It doesn't come from labor income. And that's entirely untaxed. Somewhere around $400,000, when you get to somebody, the people who make that much in a year, okay, at about that point, it's more of their income is coming from investment income than labor income. And then when you get into the stratosphere of million-dollar incomes and so forth, you're talking about 90% or so of the income is coming from uh, investment income. And so if you were to tax investment income, that would bring in even more revenue than 
um, taxing just the higher labor income. So that's um, I mean, that would not only allow you to stabilize the system, uh, it would allow you to expand benefits because there would be more money coming in. And there, there are many other ways you can do this. You, you could uh, invest, uh, you could start taxing financial tra- transactions. Um, you could, uh, one, of, one of the things that, uh, well, I'll, I'll hold this off to maybe we'll talk about it in a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I think the point is well taken, right? That there, there's that, that the talk of bankruptcy and crisis simply does not correspond with what we understand about the finances of the program, how it functions, and the kinds of relatively modest policy fixes that would only affect a very small portion of the population could get us to solvency and then some in relatively short order if, of course, we could overcome the political problem. Yes, yeah, not a, not a small thing, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's really important. It's a political problem. It's not a technical problem. Yeah. Um, so, one of the, one of the things that I that I appreciate about the book, Jim, is that in addition to helping individuals think about their own retirement, the potential sources of income, and and how they might might. Uh, understand what their future might look like. You offer also offer some some in many cases really detailed, sophisticated advice to people who are negotiating contracts for their union. So I wonder if we might turn our attention now to thinking a little bit about that and and either um, um, have you start off by by. Uh, Maybe let's talk about those uh, pension programs that you were talking about earlier, and then we'll turn our attention to negotiating for uh, employer-sponsored retirement programs. But if I'm walking into uh, new bargaining for a new contract in a defined benefit pension program, what are the things that you should that you think I should have sort of at the top of my list of things to be thinking about? Well, um, first is um, to defend the plan. Uh, assuming it's a good plan. I mean, there are defined benefit plans that are not particularly good ones. Uh, and if it's not particularly good one, then it's a question of improving that plan. Um, every defined ben- benefit plan has room for improvement. If it doesn't have a cost of living uh, adjustment you know, in it, you should try to get one in it. Um, if it doesn't allow people to buy time uh, with savings from other positions, should add that as a possibility. Because when you look around the country, I mean, there are thousands of different defined benefit plans with all kinds of features that are in them. I mean, just as long as they are actuarially sound, I mean, you don't want to put in some clause that'll bankrupt the plan. Uh, as long as, you know, they they work, um, they should be put in, you know, so they're of a benefit um, to people. Um, so that's kind of one thing is, you know, if if you have a plan, a defined benefit plan, that's a good one, um, defend it. Um, and then the other thing is if management comes with wanting to end the plan, um, then you really have to pull out all the stops to, um, first uh, inform what that means um, to members. Because quite often, or or I would say probably even 
all the time if management wants to end a a defined benefit plan and substitute a 401k or cash balance plan, they will sell that as being in the benefit of employees. And and maybe there's one or two features that will benefit employees, but overall, um, they will lose a lot of retirement income when that happens. And so there's a real need for members to be aware of just what's involved in the management uh, plan and then to resist it if that's what's going to happen. Um, you made reference to to if you don't have a provision in your plan that allows you to buy time, you should should look for opportunities to insert that. Can you talk a little bit about what that is for people who may not know? Sure. Um, most um, defined benefit plans, not all of them. Some are, are kind of eye-wateringly complex in the way that you accrue credit. But most of them are based upon um, how how long uh, you have worked in your position, okay? And then you get a certain percentage, okay, uh, of your final income according to the number of years. So let's say you've been working for 25 years and your plan has a 2% multiplier. That would mean 25 times 2% is 50%, you would get 50% of your final salary. That would be your pension. Okay, That's a very clear-cut, transparent plan. Not all of them are that way, but a lot of them are. Okay, but let's say um, you got into that pension plan, but you have been working somewhere else for 20 years, okay, or 10 years, or 15 years, and maybe you had a 401k there. Okay. Um, if you're allowed to purchase service credits, and that's the term that's used for this, you can, um, for a certain price, buy numbers of years of credit. So if you work for 25 years, maybe you can buy five more years, and then you get 30 years credit. 30 years times 2% is 60% of your final salary, rather than 25 times 2, which is 50%. And it's, it's always a really good deal. And it's not at the expense of the plan. Okay? It's all actuarially neutral. It's just a matter of somebody setting it up and going to the trouble to set that up. And a number of plans do have that, that provision, but not all of them have that provision. I would say, kind of returning to a previous point, um, it's one thing to get, let's say, 50% of your final salary. Um, and it's another thing um, to get 50% of your salary and a cost of living adjustment. Okay, The cost of living adjustment, I think, is really critical um, because if you have inflation at all, and we always have some degree of it, it means that a flat retirement income is going to lose value over time. Um, that's why if we look at yesterday's newspaper, literally yesterday's, we learned that um, Social Security is putting in the biggest uh, cost of living um, increase for next year, 5.9% um, in the last 40 years. And so, so that's very important, especially for people who depend mostly on Social Security to keep up with 
um, the rate of inflation and the cost of living. So in the time remaining, why don't we now turn our attention to those defined contribution plans and sort of same scenario, right? I'm going into bargaining on behalf of my union and you're going to offer me advice and the things that I should be thinking about as we think about that employer-sponsored defined the defined contribution plan. What should be on the top of, of my list of things to be wary of or look out for or fight for? Well, one of the things that I do in the beginning of the book um, is I uh, approach it like a sort of like a consumer magazine, you, you know, that this is the best product. This is, you know, good, but not as good. This is the worst. And I, I list three types of, of uh, retirement plans, a defined benefit plan based on the final salary is the best. That's the gold standard from the point of view of the employee. Okay. And if you've got one of those, you know, that that's great. Okay. Um, the worst is the 401k. You're going to get the least amount of income from it. And then in between, um, there's a kind of hybrid model called the cash balance plan. Okay. And it, um, is not quite as bad as a 401k, and it's not as good as a final salary um, pension plan. But if you're in some place with a 401k um, and you're bargaining, I would raise with management, why don't you switch this to a cash balance plan? Um, they're not going to go for a pension plan. Okay, um, you know, a, a traditional pension plan, but there's a lot of advantages to them, tax advantages to change from a 401k to a cash balance plan. And that, that advantage, those are, there are advantages for employees too. Uh, if I can kind of get a little bit wonky in this. Yeah, please. Okay, um, what happens with a 401k I mean, you're on your own with one of those things. I mean, you 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 do all. You have to guide your investments, um, and then um, when you retire, um, you have you know a, a sum of money that you're supposed to then use to finance your retirement. And of course, nobody knows how long they're going to live, and you're supposed to be your own actuary. You know, all all of these kinds of problems with it. The most secure thing you can do with a 401k is to turn um, that sum of money into an annuity. An annuity is a product that the life insurance industry sells, where you give them, say, $100,000, and in return, they give you 6% of that every year okay, for the rest of your life. In other words, you've now removed some of the longevity risk, okay? Because um, the the life insurance company is a is sort of a, a cross between a bank and a casino. I, I mean, it, it it's hoping that you die early, you know, and then it wins, and you're hoping that you live a long time, and then you win on this bet. Okay, so um, that. Um, I mean, that works to a degree, but it's a very expensive proposition. Um, 
because the uh, life insurance companies take out their own commissions, their own profits, and all of that. And so they set a price that, you know, is pretty expensive, okay, for you, okay? And for that reason, very few people actually move from a 401k to an annuity when they retire. The difference between that and a cash balance plan is that by law, a cash balance plan has to offer people an annuity from their own funds. Um, They can't just turn them over to a life insurance company, for-profit life insurance company. So they have to offer them a non-profit annuity. And so the cost of the annuity um, is much, much less than it would be uh, with a private life insurance company. And to me, that's a, a huge advantage okay, that the cash balance plan has over the 401k. Um, now, all of that said, uh, the cash balance plan is still inferior to the final salary pension plan. But those are in decline rather than on the increase, right? Those traditional pension plans. Um, Yes and no. Um, They're definitely on the decline in the private sector. They're not out. Um, You know, they're still, you know, they still exist. Okay. But the vast majority of private sector plans are 401ks. Uh, But, um, and that that all started in the 1980s. Okay. But in the... public sector, um, the uh, final salary traditional pensions are alive and well. Um, They're in most states, they exist. Um, They're one or two or a handful of examples of of states that are trying to get out of them. Okay, but uh, most states, that's not true. So you've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with James W. Russell about his new book, The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees from Monthly Review Press. And if you would like to know more about these topics, either as an individual thinking about your own retirement or someone affiliated with a union thinking about how to improve the retirement security available to your members, I encourage you to take a look at the book uh, and see uh, the enormous depth that that Jim digs into there. Uh, Much appreciated, Jim. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about the book with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.